Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Welcome everybody to the Shishi Radha Kalachanji Dham Srimad Bhagavatam presentation this morning. I'm Rupanugadas with you. I know it's not good, but it's unavoidable. We have a bad connection here, I think. Yes, yes. Everybody can hear me? Is everybody in Pune, India hearing me also? We, we welcome everyone right from around the world listening into the Bhagavatam class here at Shishi Radhakalachanji Dam in Dallas, Texas, where we have just celebrated the Kadashi day before yesterday. Before we begin, we'll, we'll always ask the blessings, thank you, of the Supreme Personality of Godhead with a little song. Jayaratamadhava Kunjabihari Jaya Radhamadhava Jaya Kunjabihari Gopi Janavalava Have I I've got the wrong tune. Haven't I? Or is that okay? Jaya Gopi Janavalava Jaya Girirara Jaya Girivaradari Janavalava Jaya Girivaradari Jaya Girivaradari Dasuranandana Brajajana Ranjana Dasuranandana Brajajana Ranjana Dasuranandana Brajajana Ranjana Yasodanandana Brajajana Ranjana Damunati Ravanachari Damunati Ravanachari Jai Radha Madhava Jaya Kunja Bihari Ramadhava Jaya Kunja Bihari 
Sai Gaur Premananda Hari Hari Bo. Jai Om Vishnu Pada Paramahamsa Paribhijaka Charja Hasto Tadasitya Sri Srimadis Divine Grace Abhaya Taranada Vinda Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj Srila Prabhupada Ki Ananta Kuti Vaishnavrinda Ki Iskan BBT Fandra Charja Srila Prabhupada Ki Iskan Guru Parampara Ki Sri Rupa Sri Sanatan Bhatta Raghunath Sri Jeeva Gopal Bhatta Dasa Raghunath Sadko Sami Prabhu Ki Nama Charja Srila Haridasa Kuru Ki Premzekahu Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunitananda Sri Advaita Gadadhar Sri Vasari Gora Bhaktarinda Ki Sri Sri Radha Krishna Gopa Gopinath Shamakun Radhakun Yirigovadana Ki Sri Vindavanam Ki Sri Maturadam Ki Sri Mayapunabhadit Damaki, Sri Jagannath Puridam Ki, Sri Sri Radhakalachanji Dam Ki, Ganga Devi Ki, Jamuna Mai Ki, Tunsi Devi Ki, Bhakti Devi Ki, Samaveda Bhakti Vrinda Ki, Brihat Madanga Transcendental Book and Prasadam Distribution Ki, Nitaigora Premananda, Hari Hari Bowl, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories, all glories, all glories to Sri Guru and Sri Gauranga. Namo Vishnu Padaya Krishna Pistaya Bhutale Shimati Bhakti Vedanta Swamaniti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharine Nivishesha Shinivari Vashatade Shatarine Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaivanarotamam Devim Sadasvatim Yasun Tato Jayam Udirayat Nasta Praeshvavadresu Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya Bhagavati Uttama Shloke Bhakti Bhavari Naistiki Gantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai Srila Vyasadeva the author Ki Jai Today, folks, we're reading from the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, as we've been doing. And we're still in chapter 8, the chapter entitled Prayers by Queen Kunti. And we're on text number 40, 4040. So we'll recite this word for word initially. Ime Jana Pada. Srida SVR Srida Supraquashadi Supraquashadi Virudha Banadri Nadi Udanvato he, Edhanti, Edante, Tava, Vikshitai, 
Now let's do this as poetry. Ime jana padahasra shridva Supak vaushadi viruta Vanadri nadyaudan vanto Notice in that, uh, in that line there, the two last words blend together. Nadyudanvato. Pardon? Udanvanto. Did I mispronounce it? Udanvanto should be two ends. Udanvanto, Vando, Vanto. It looks to me like it's got two ends. Is that not correct? Udanvanto. And that's what's up there, or no? Is it missing something? Okay, so let's repeat that third line again. Vanadi nad vanadri nadyuvanudanvanto vanadri nadyuvandunan. Navadri nad yudan vanto. Hye dante tava vikshitai. So we have there again the, the, uh, the first two words in the, in the last line blend together. Hye. Hye dante tava vikshitai. Now, the, uh, one of the reasons we, we combine those words is that we have the correct number of syllables in the line. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So let's do, let's do it, uh, repeat it once more. Ime jana pada shri, no. Ime jana pada shri, ime jana pada shri, shri, I think. I, I tell you what, I'm going to let you guys chant that. Go, you ready? Can you chant? Anadri nadyudan vanto Erante tava vikshitai Anyone else? Imejana parashridha Tupac Vyashadi 
I apologize for our popping sound here. So let's let's do the word for word translations. Ime all these Janapada cities and towns Sridha flourished uh Supakva mature Aushadi herbs Virudha vegetables Vana forests Adri hills Nadi rivers Udanvanta seas seas S E A S seas He certainly Edhante increasing Tava Bayu Vikshitai Seen. That translation, or this is the translation of the verse and the purport, translation purport by His Divine Grace. A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Maharaj, Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. All these cities and villages are flourishing in all respects. This is the words of Queen Kunti. In all respects, because the herbs and grains are in abundance, the trees are full of fruits, the rivers are flowing, the hills are full of minerals, and the oceans full of wealth. And this is all due to your glancing over them. Queen Kunti is talking to whom? Krishna. That's right. So repeat with me, please. All these cities and villages are flourishing in all respects because the herbs and grains are in abundance. The trees are full of fruits. The rivers are flowing. The hills are full of minerals. And the oceans are full of wealth. And this is all due to your glancing over them. So, Queen Kunti is giving credit where credit is due to the Supreme Personality of Godhead whose very presence, by whose very presence Everything is, is flourishing and growing as it should. Even the rivers are flowing nicely. Purport by Srila Prabhupada. Human prosperity flourishes by natural gifts and not by gigantic industrial enterprises. The gigantic industrial enterprises are products of a godless civilization, and they cause the destruction of the noble aims of human life. The more we go on increasing such troublesome industries to squeeze out the vital energy of the human being, the more there will be unrest and dissatisfaction of the people in general, although a few only can live lavishly by exploitation. The natural gifts such as grains and vegetables, fruits, rivers, the hills of jewels and minerals, the seas full of pearls are supplied by the order of the Supreme, and as he desires, material nature produces them in abundance or restricts them at all times. The natural law is that the human being may take advantage of these godly gifts by nature 
and satisfactorily flourish on them without being captivated by the exploitative motive of lording it over material nature. The more we attempt to exploit material nature according to our whims of enjoyment, the more we shall become entrapped by the reaction of such exploitative attempts. If we have sufficient grains, fruits, vegetables, and herbs, then what is the necessity of running a slaughterhouse and killing poor animals? A man need not kill an animal if he has sufficient grains and vegetables to eat. The flow of the river waters fertilizes the fields, and there is more than what we need. And there is more than what we need. Minerals are produced in the hills and the jewels in the ocean. If human civilization has sufficient grains, minerals, jewels, water, milk, etc., then why should it be, uh, why should it hanker after the terrible industrial enterprise at the cost of the labor of some unfortunate man? But all these natural gifts are dependent on the mercy of the Lord. What we need, therefore, is to be obedient to the laws of the Lord and achieve the perfection of human life by devotional service. The indications by Kunti Devi are just to the point. She desires that God's mercy be bestowed upon them so that natural prosperity be maintained by His grace. Om Jnana Timirandasya Jnana Salakaya Chakshuran Militam Jaina Tasmai Shri Gurave Shri Chaitanya Manobishtam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rupakada Maya Dratti Swavrantikam Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Dutta Patakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavams Cha Shri Rupam Sagratattam Sahagana Raghunatan Vitam Tam Sajivam Savadvaitam Savaduttam Padijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padan Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakan Vitamscha He Krishna Karanasando Dinabando Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Taptakan Jana Gurangi Radhe Brindamadeshwari Rishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vanchakalpa Tarubhyascha Gripa Sindhubhyevacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Nama Jai Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Sri Dvaita Gadadha Sri Vasari Gaurabhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Nam Om Vishnu Vadaya Krishna Pristaya Bhutale Srimate Tamal Krishna Gosamaliti Namane. So Queen Kunti is, is speaking very, very nice words. These are prayers by Queen Kunti, a whole chapter that is given to those prayers that she repeats before the Lord. This is after, I think, the Battle of Kurukshetra, um, and uh, so many people have been killed. And yet, Queen Kunti's five sons have come through unscathed, and now their time of difficulties has apparently ended. They have the kingdom that was supposed to be theirs in the first place before they had to fight 
uh, to gain the right to control the entire world. And so they were very successful. So uh, Queen Kuti is talking about how the land produces all the necessities of human life, or at least Srila uh, Prabhupada in his purports is, is really, is really uh, making this point. And Srila Prabhupada has made this point time and again, that uh, this industrial, commercial way of life that we're all living will not bring happiness and satisfaction. It just doesn't, and it can't, because that's not the divine plan for the activities of this planet. The Supreme Lord has intended that all of the, the wonderful ingredients that come from the earth be used in service to the Lord, and then when, when they are given in service to the Lord, then everybody else becomes satisfied. We take the remnants of whatever we offer to the Lord from His gifts to us in the form of crops and jewels and, and various things that we get from the, from the, from Mother Earth. Uh, so I'd, I'd just like to talk for a little bit about, uh, something that's very dear to my heart, and that is, uh, getting back to the land. Um, many years ago, uh, sometime around 1973, uh, my wife and I kind of dropped out of society for about four or four and a half years. And we were living in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. We bought a piece of land up in the hills just north of Knoxville. And there was a, there was a rural community up there in that valley, this beautiful little valley. Um, there, there was a big, one of the big lakes that had been impounded by the Tennessee Valley Authority that was very close to us, about a quarter mile down the road. So the, 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 the setting was just very pristine and nice. Uh, at the same time, there was a lot of ignorance among the people who were there. And of course, they, they couldn't help it. This is what they were born into. And some of those people had been living in that valley practically all their lives. They, some of them remembered even, and these, these were not real old people either. They had, they had been living there when electricity first came into the valley. So most of the homes had electricity. Some of them had televisions, radios, you know, all those things. And, but, uh, of course, m- many of them found themselves working at very drudgerous jobs. And they seemed to appreciate it because it gave them the money they needed to, you know, to buy some of the things that were being advertised on television, being spoken of by a lot of the people who were their friends. So I would just like to talk for a little bit about the advantages of of living a farming existence. Now, we're talking about a generation or two generations ago. Uh, not my parents' generation so much, but my grandparents' generation, uh, who were mostly farming. It was said, and I've read this, and I probably quoted it here in the temple, that in the year 1900, uh, 95% of the population made their livelihoods with some farm-related uh, activity, either directly farming the land or, or you know, processing what came from the land, or taking care of animals and that sort of thing. And, and so, uh, 95% and 5%, it was said, made their livelihoods on some, some non-farm related activity. Now it's interesting to note that 100 years later in the year 2000, 5% of the people of the country made their livings, 
in some farm-related activity, and 95% of the people made their livings in some non-farm-related activity. So it, the numbers just switched. In a hundred years' time, that, which means about two, three generations at the most, two generations primarily, uh, in that length of time, it switched from 95% making their livelihoods on the farm in 1900 to 95% making their livings in 2000 by some non-farm-related activity. So what are the advantages of farming? Uh, you would think that uh, after you hear some of these advantages that that more people would have stayed with it. But there are reasons that they did not. Uh, one of the advantages is keeping the soil, the water, and the air all clean. Before industrialization, you could just about, well, we except for the places where there were cities, and the cities are always kind of dirty places. Uh, nowadays, fortunately, we have, in, at least in the western countries, we have uh, sewage treatment plants that take the sewage, and so people in the cities never have to tolerate or put up with that. All they do is pull the flush handle on the boat, and all their, you know, all of the waste from the house go down the drain, and they're collected in some central point, and then they're. Uh, are allowed to uh, mix with bacteria. All this, you know, this is part of the industrial society. But at one time, a hundred years, 150 years ago, you could practically go out into the lakes and into the on the rivers and drink the water directly from the streams. Now, people in in uh, countries that are not so developed industrially as as the Western countries are can still do that. But if we go out to, if we go to say to in, India, many of us like to like to uh, make a pilgrimage to India. If we go there and we drink the water, then we get sick for three or four days, and we usually have to have some kind of medicine to get as well. But anyhow, in the distant past, the rivers and the lakes were all clean. I remember hearing uh, something on probably National Public Radio one time. This man was talking about how, as a child. His father would take him out on Lake Erie, one of the big one of the big lakes in the northern part that divide United States and Canada, that kind of joins them together. And in Lake Erie, and they would not even take bottled water with them; they would just take a cup, and they would dip down into the river and get—I mean, into the lake—and they would drink the water directly from the lake. Can you imagine it being that clean now? As a matter of fact, I think Lake Erie one of the, is one of those lakes that was considered at one time to be dead. There was so much industrial pollution being pumped into them. Well, of course, industries tend to do that. They, they set up their manufacturing plants because they have to have water, and they use a lot of water. I worked a couple of summers at a, a paper manufacturing plant over in the western side of Alabama, which was close to my parents' home in Mississippi on the eastern side of Mississippi. So I drove about 70 miles to get over there. And this this manufacturing, paper manufacturing company was uh, was right on the bank of a river. And so they would take water for all their industrial processes, and, of course, there would be chemicals mixed with it. So when they pumped it out, then they had to put it in settling ponds, and they had to aerate it with great big pumps that pumped air, kept the water frothed up so the bacteria would grow 
and would uh, would eat up all of, at least this was the idea, that they would eat up all the waste products and make them safe. And then the water would eventually be uh, poured back into the river. And of course, uh, the national government had their, had the Environmental Protection Agency or some such, uh, agency, um, uh, sending a boat up and down the river taking samples daily, every day, more than once a day. And so the company itself, American Can Company, I think it was at the time, uh, they had to send their, uh, boats up and down the river too to check it to make sure that they were doing the job well enough. And of course, there were minimum standards. But I don't think anybody in his right mind would want to drink the water a hundred mile, a hundred feet even away from where those plants dumped their, dumped their waste in. Because even though it had been treated, it still wasn't good. So one of the advantages living in a, in a, in an agrarian society, one that depends on the land, is that you have clean water. And the soil is clean. The soil has not been contaminated by radiation or by some industrial product. Uh, and then the air is also clean. So at one time, you know, a lot of people, they think back to the time when only the Native Americans were here. This is before the white men came and, and messed up everything. Our ancestors, you know, came over from, from Europe, different parts of the world, and, and they started uh, using all of these resources uh, for their own benefit. And at first, it was mainly the, they were interested in getting products that were grown here, cotton, tobacco, and different kinds of things like that, and shipping them back over to England and other parts of Europe. Uh, for their industries, they had already an estab- they'd established an industrial society at that time, but America still had relatively clean environment. But as time passed, then, of course, the industry came here. We had we had a lot of um, uh, waterfalls, a lot of water flowing down hills, up in the, especially in the northeast part of the country, and that's where the industries got started because that falling water produ- produced power. It could turn a water wheel, and and so it would turn the machinery inside the the plant, and they could do things with that. So another advantage to uh, uh, doing a farming society is that you, you learn to use simple, replaceable tools. In other words, a farmer 100, 150 years ago uh, could even make uh, many of the tools that he used. Now, of course, by that time, they were already using steel, but uh, it didn't require a big industrial setup to have steel products either. A blacksmith could take a steel bar that was m- smelted in some other part of the country, and he could uh, he could turn that into just about any implement that a farmer wanted. So simple, reusable tools, replaceable tools, was really a nice thing uh, to have. They didn't require going to Home Depot or, or or Lowe's or some other place. You know, whenever you broke a hammer handle or a shovel handle or something, you just just went and bought a new one, and it was cheap. Another thing people from that era did was they took all of their needs from the earth. You know, my, my grandparents, they farmed and, uh, and so whatever, whatever they needed, they came from the land. That included all of their foodstuffs. By that time, of course, they were getting, uh, um, um, fabrics, uh, big bolts of fabrics. You know, you could go out, go, go down to a store and buy a big bolt of fabric, which had been produced probably up in the northeast by some manufacturing company, and shipped down to the south. 
And, and they could take that. And generally the, uh, the lady of the house, sometimes the men of the house, uh, would, would be able to operate a treadle sewing machine. You know, those things that you've mastered with your feet to make them work. No electricity was necessary at that time. Uh, farmers generally avoided mass sicknesses such as we've just been experiencing for the last year because people were not herded together in cities. In other words, not living in such close proximity. Most of the farmers, they live maybe in a community, but the closest house might be a quarter mile down the road. So they they didn't have uh, these kinds of sicknesses that began to come, you know, the plagues that began to come during the 1800s, maybe even before, when people started living in the cities. And, and the cities at that time were not very clean. There was a problem with, always with waste disposal. And people were living so close together in such uh, hovels that uh, sicknesses, once they took, took, took hold, you know, people were not very clean in their habits at that time. So uh, this is something that was avoided by people who lived out in the country. There was always water, a water supply close by, either a well, like my wife's grandparents had, had one of these, uh, um, let's see, what do they call it, uh, wells that bubble up from the earth of its own pressure. What's that called, Mr. Bogdan? No, not guys. <laughs> no, it didn't bubble up that, that, that fast. No, um, let's see. Um, anyhow, water that came up to the surface and sometimes, you know, you know, they would, they would drill or were using, using pretty simple implements to drill or dig a hole. They would actually dig the well sometimes and go down maybe 20, 30 feet. And there they would get water. Sometimes they'd run into these, uh, these waters, uh, let's see, what's it called? Gianti, you're listening in. What's, what is it called? Um, anyhow, water that came up from the earth, and it usually had a very nice flavor. It was, um, spring came out of the ground, usually, you know, out of the top of the ground. We had one of those up in Tennessee when we were living. They had a big, massive spring that produced the water that we used. But, uh, but these, anyhow, the farmers always had a, some source of water that was, uh, plentiful. Because they, they wouldn't settle in a place where there was not water. Uh, only those persons who, who were very austere and, and maybe not so clean would do that. So, um, even, even though they didn't, they didn't live in cities at that time in an agrarian society, they learned to depend on others around them. You know, one farmer produced, a, had a good crop of corn come in this year. Maybe he didn't have any butter beans, and so he'd get he'd swap corn for butter beans or whatever his neighbor had, and and they would get along that way. And then when they when they needed help doing something like the barn raisings, you remember you've heard about barn raisings, a uh, whole group of a whole neighborhood would get together, and the men would put up a barn in a day practically. Um, they'd have all the materials there. A lot of it they cut from their own land. And uh, so they ha- they shared those experiences. They depended on each other. They had to have each other. Nowadays, uh, you know, a hundred people can be living in, a, in an apartment complex and, and never get to know who their next door neighbor is. But at this at this time, and they don't depend on them. They don't depend on them. You know, they have money so they can go and buy whatever they need. They don't have to depend on other people. Um, another advantage is is being able to raise children in a sustainable environment. 
And this is a very nice thing, especially when you're not dependent on big industry, uh, big commercial businesses. Uh, uh, then the children will grow up doing, you know, following the uh, example of, of the parents and the grandparents. They they will have their they, uh, their own land. They will. Uh, they, children learn how to how to grow things. They knew exactly when to plant something. They knew when to turn the ground. They knew when to leave the land late, as they said, late laying fallow. Means that they didn't grow anything on it for maybe three years at a time, and then they they would be farming some other part of their their land. And uh, so these are things that the children learned. Um, in that kind of sustainable environment, and they never had to worry too much because about fertilizing. Uh, the chemical fertilizer came in, you know, sometime during the early 1900s, and uh, people started using that stuff. And of course, it doesn't rebuild the soil. That it, it, you can deplete the soil very quickly. You can grow some really fine products and take to market. But as people have found out, homegrown tomatoes are a lot better than the ones you buy in the store, unless you happen to go to a farmer's market or something and you buy from somebody else's uh, garden. Uh, the, the parents in, a, in an agrarian society, we saw this among the uh, Mennonites up in Tennessee, uh, that they, they teach uh, self-reliant skills uh, to their children. They have kind of a formal education. They teach them some reading and math, and and um, in in their own schools. But mainly, about in about the eighth grade, then the young men go out and they, and they start help. Well, I guess always they're helping with the family somehow or other with the farming. But they learn uh, they learn those skills that are necessary that they're going to be using to support their families. Of course, we understand now that about 25% of all the children that grow up in an Amish household will leave home and go out into the society to work. Some of them come back, some of them do not. So the question was asked, well, if, 20, if you lose 25% of your kids, then, you know, what do you do? How do you sustain your families? Well, you have a lot of kids. Uh, 25% of uh, 12, 12 children... Twenty-five percent of that would be that's one fourth. That'd be three. So three of your children, but that leaves nine if you have twelve children. And of course, the children always had something to do. It wasn't that they were lying around idle or watching television all day or or going and hanging out with friends and smoking dope and stuff like that. Uh, so they they were taught this kinds of skills they're going to be using for raising their own families. And I understand also that that's even among the Amish that's a problem. That the kids are, are getting together with some of the town kids and, you know, on the weekends or sometimes and they're going out and they're doing all the kinds of stuff that other kids do, unfortunately. Mostly in the, in the schools, uh, well, in a farming society, uh, the education is toward topics of, of persons who are godly. You know, in Christianity, there's the Bible that is typically read in the household. And um, and it's it's all about persons who are devotees of the Supreme Lord. Same is true in our religious society. This is International Society of Krishna Consciousness. The main topics that we want our kids to learn in school, especially when they're younger, is about godly persons. Just like in the the uh, the book, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, there it's just 
full, even in Srimad Bhagavatam, it's, it's just full of examples of persons who are very godly. And so, if, you know, if you don't teach people that this is the way really good people are and this is how they live, then what examples are they going to follow? What they see on television? What they watch in the movies? Yes, those are exactly the kinds of, of examples that they're going to follow. We see that happening, and it's very unfortunate in our society. Uh, in, in, a, in an agrarian society, they engage animals in doing meaningful work. So uh, when, a, when a cow gives birth to a calf, there's a 50% chance it's going to be a male, 50% it's going to be a female. And so you've got these, we, we know what we do with female cows, we, we make milkers out of them. And so in a big commercial dairy, you know, they'll, they'll milk a cow until she's no longer productive and they'll send her off to the slaughterhouse. Oh, you don't like that. We don't like that at all. Because any, any being that we take milk from is we consider that to be like our mother. And it doesn't make sense then to take our mother when she gets a little bit older and send her off to be killed. And so, uh, this is, this is a, and the, the male animals, of course, except for maybe one or two that are kept for breeding stock, uh, they're, they're sent off as, as soon as they get up to a certain weight, they send them off to be killed, to put meat on the table of, of people here in the West. So in, in, an, in a farming society, even in the Bible, it said, he who killeth an ox is the same as he who killeth a man. You know that? You've heard that before. So uh, the the reason for breeding cattle in in an agrarian society is not to produce milking cows; it's to produce work animals. And and uh, an ox, a, a, a bull, of course, causes all kinds of trouble unless he's neutered, castrated. And some people say, well, that's not very kind. Well, but still, it, it makes him a useful work animal and. Uh, you have to engage big animals like that in some in some meaningful work. Otherwise, they just cause problems. You go around push, push, pushing all the fences down and getting out of the property, and you have to go round them up again. So they have to be worked, and if they're worked in a, in a very um, sensitive manner, in other words, providing them enough rest, providing them enough food and water, then they can they can do a lot of work for a farmer. One of the big advantages to living in a in a in a, uh, an agrarian society is generally you can live debt free. People used to buy land. My my wife's grandfather again. He he and his his wife together, they accumulated some. You know, some land was inherited, but they accumulated something like seven hundred seven hundred acres of land. It's a lot of land, and you can do a lot with that. But the thing is, they had one son. So everything went to their son. Uh, that son had a daughter and a son, and so the land all goes to the son, right? And his son that had had only one son, had a child, one child, a son. So now that three generations, four generations down, uh, there's only one son left to inherit the property. That's my wife's nephew. And, and so he has chosen to marry a woman who has... Two children already, and they've decided not to have any more children. So the so the family name will not go with the land perpetually as it had done before. <clears throat> but anyhow, uh, if if you if you 
you know, are careful with your money. You make good crops. Sometimes you have a little extra money. You might might buy a farmer's land over here. Maybe it's gotten too old to farm the land, doesn't have any children who are interested in working it. So they were able to, and so pretty much debt-free. You know, they didn't have to pay so much money a month for 30 years to put a roof over the head. They could build a house out of materials that they took off the land and took down to the sawmill and put together a house that way. They could do that at that time, and they did that. That's what people did at that time. Up in the up in Tennessee, where when when I was in my drop dropout years, guy that lived right on the right across the little valley from us, up on up on a little ridge, he uh, he built his own house with a hammer and and a handsaw. He had no power tools. Built his own house, so you can imagine that when he got done with building his house, he didn't know he didn't know anything on it, and he probably did it in less than a year. He had a he had a, a brother or a friend down the road, just about a quarter mile, who had a, a just a, a simple uh, a, um, a sawmill, just just one motor and one giant saw wheel, you know. And he he would cut he would cut lumber. They called it cutting a house pattern. So you know you you had some land cut off, uh, you had some wood cut off your land. You had some trees, you brought them down, cut them down, and hauled them on the wagon down to the neighbor that had the sawmill, and he cut you a house pattern. And you'd, you'd use that then for building your own house. So that was done. So you could live debt-free. Um, one of the big deals in modern society is that so much time is spent in traveling to and from work. I, I was just aghast when I heard that people work in New York City and they have to take a train two hours in, two hours out. Four hours a day just in traveling. Uh, a farmer doesn't have to travel quite that far. He might have to go a hundred yards out to the barn to get his mule and get his plow. And 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 uh, and he and, uh, um, it's this this leads into another thing: keeping friends and family together. Uh, at at that point in time, you know, there wasn't so much travel. That, and we're talking about a hundred years ago. Uh, Prior, uh, you know, uh, by that time, railroads came into being. You know, they they were they were well being used quite a lot, not only to move materials but to move move human beings. That was one of the main ways to get from point A to point B. If it was more than five miles, if it was more than five miles, you pretty much had to take a train. Otherwise, you'd be doing an overnight trip in a wagon. So uh, the the fact that that they, they, that travel was not as easily available then as it is now meant that people stayed together. Families and friends stayed together. Occasionally you'd have somebody new come in from a, a, maybe a, a, a little community a few miles away, you know, boy and girl get married. And so maybe there'd be a few miles separation that they'd have to go to visit the girl's parents. Um, but this this is one of the one of the really great benefits in having an agrarian society. Uh, everyone had a means of livelihood in agrarian society. Of course, in the in the South, in the southern part of the United States, we know that people took advantage of of very poor people, not only blacks but whites also. There were whites and blacks that you know were like tenant farmers. They called them. Uh, uh, they didn't own any land, but they would go to, they, they would work with a, 
another person and they do sharecropping. You know, they, they would provide the labor and the person on the land would provide the seeds and the land and the equipment for doing the cultivation. And, and so, uh, everybody had, a, anybody who wanted to work could find a job. It may not pay very much according to today's standards. But then, uh, I remember when my family got by on $50 a week, that was my dad's income. They'd, they'd go to the grocery store, buy a week's supply of groceries for 12 bucks. So everybody had a means of livelihood. Um, uh, at that time, well, I should say, if, if, if we had a, a farming society now, uh, it, we would remove the unnecessary object of, of desire. And what what is it that people desire? All the electronic stuff, automobiles, uh, you know, vacations, to, you know, a few hundred miles away is nothing nowadays. People think nothing of it. That's just part of it. Uh, but in a in a in a very restricted rural society, it, that was not so. And so, one of the big deals is that it um, being in a farming situation allows you to have free time. Uh, People think about a farmer's working really hard all the time, but that's not really true. Thank you all very much for coming in. Appreciate that. Um, uh, farmers, farmers actually, uh, they have a lot of time when, you know, when they can't be out working. Either it's snowing or it's raining or something's going on. They don't have to get in the car and drive 10 miles, 20 miles, 100 miles to get to get to their job. They just stay home, prop their feet up. Yeah, it's pretty nice. So having free time, and and that also, you know, for us, that means uh, more time for doing devotional activities. There's a lot of things that you can do uh, in devotional life if you have if you have free time. Uh, while we're talking about, it, we might also mention that in nowadays it seems to be necessary for husband and wife, or you know, to partners, two partners in a household, necessary for both of them to be working to be able to sustain the lifestyle that they've come to expect. And and therefore, there's very little time left at the end of the day, and, and they come back together at a time when they're tired and grumpy, and, you know, that's, that's a good time for arguing, <laughs> griping at each other. You didn't do this. Well, you were supposed to do this. You know, so many things like that happen. But in a, in a farming society, you know, people work, a few hours in the day, and and when the, when the sun starts going down, that's when you park yourself out on the front porch in the rocking chair, and you just sit there and rock and listen to the night creatures, and or maybe maybe go inside and read read a chapter of the Bible or some other piece of literature, you know, holy literature. But now now that we've talked about some of the advantages, I, I wanted to just mention that there are some difficulties in uh, returning to the land. We think that it would be really nice, you know, if we could just just get a place out in the country and and start farming again, you know, kind of be self-sufficient. But it's not that easy to do. First of all, you got to deal with the high cost of land ownership. Uh, we have a farm that's not too far from us, about forty-five minute drive. Uh, Radhanath Prabhu has got some land out there, and he's dedicated it to serving Krishna and Krishna's cows. And so um, there's some land that is, has just come up for sale, and I posted a notice of this on uh, 
North uh, Texas Christians Northeast, something like that. Uh, uh, I, that uh, there's a house with 36 acres right next door to Radonat Prabhu, and there's another 36 acres that runs on the backside that's a really a hay meadow, and hay is a big deal because you know that's that's what people feed the animals. And so we found out about the price of them and the price of the two parcels together. One was uh, the house and the 36 acres was seemed to me like $640,000. And the and the 36 acres back there, that was another 500 and something. So the total came to be $1.19 million for that piece of land, for that parcel of land. And so, you know, it seems to us like a lot of money. But there, I'd say there are quite a few people in the city of Dallas who pay that much for a house with, an, with less than an acre of land around it. You know, some big, some big Mac mansions that are going up around. Of course, not everybody pays that much, but if you got the money for it, why not? You know, if you're making 50 million a year, then you, to pay a million dollars for a house is not, not such a big deal, really. So it's if you think about returning to land, you have to have money. Uh, other than other, if you don't, then you have to uh, have someone who can, like a rich uncle, that can leave you something in the will. Uh, sometimes people get land that way, and of course it's probably 500 miles away, so they can't really take advantage of it. So they just sell it once they get it, and then they no longer have that land available. Uh, Another difficulty is learning the skills required to be self-sufficient. You know, anybody that thinks that, well, we just we're just going to get some money together, buy a piece of land, we'll go out and farm it, and make uh, maybe won't make a living on it, but we'll just run some cows on it and have horses and you know, a few uh, apaca, what do they call alpacas, alpacas, uh, you know, like kind of like uh, llamas. Anyhow, they, they find something that they, they want to, and this is their idea of farming. It's called gentleman, gentleman farming. And they can buy, they usually have enough money, they can buy nice equipment and stuff. But if you're in a real agrarian society, like the Mennonites and the Amish that I got to know, uh, you learn skills required to become self-sufficient. Those are things that you have to learn, and that takes time. So this is one of the difficulties in returning to the land or in going to the land for the first time. You got to have those skills. And if you don't have them, you don't know how to grow butter beans. You don't know how to grow corn. You know, there's certain, certain times that to be planted. Its soil has to be prepared in a certain way. You got to have fertilizer. You got to have enough water and stuff. Another problem that we have is giving up modern amenities that are made in factories. You know, for us to think about going out and living a simpler lifestyle, that sounds very romantic. But how about no television, no microwave? How about no refrigerator, no washing machines? Who wants to do that? Uh, well, you know, maybe I am a gentleman farmer. <laughs> I've got to have all my, all my amenities, you know, that, that are made in factories and, you know, even for one of those appliances or one piece of electronic entertainment stuff, you couldn't make one piece of that yourself. It it has to be, practically has to be made in a factory. You can't just go out and cut a limb off a tree and make something that's an electronic piece of equipment. 
even with a simple device like the old crystal radios. You know, that was the most primitive form of radio back in the early part of last century. Uh, where are you going to get a crystal? You have to buy it from somebody. So uh, you, pretty much if you're going to live a very simple life out in the country, you have to learn to do without all of these things. You have to become satisfied with simple foods that you raise and, and the possessions that you, that you garner. Uh, that, and that's, that's really a coming down from where we are now in our society. Uh, here's the tough one. You have to learn new forms of entertainment. If you don't have a radio, if you don't have a television, if you don't have a, a, something to play music on, what are you going to do for entertainment? If you don't have something to watch, you don't, it's very hard, very hard to be satisfied with that, especially if you're, if you're accustomed to going to the opera or going to Broadway and seeing plays being produced. So it's, it's our understanding that Lord Brahma was the one who created the drama. The demigods came to him and said, uh, our Lord, we need some form of, of recreation entertainment. What can we do? And so, he came. He came up with the idea of of the uh, of, of, of of drama, putting on a play, and so that that's something that people can do in the simplest of settings, and it's something that's very nice when our when we see our children, even in our gurukula now, putting on a play or you know a dance or something like that. It's very satisfying, especially to the parents. The nothing the parents appreciate more than to see their kids. Of performing some, especially when it's related to the Supreme Lord. So uh, then, uh, also we had to live without without accumulating wealth. That's something that you know we're taught in the city. We have to do. If you don't, if you don't have a way to accumulate some money. If you don't have money in the bank, you're you're running a lot of risk. It's not a good thing. Uh, we have to overcome the modern uh, the attractions of our modern society. You know, such as we're talking about with the entertainment, but not only entertainment, but the transportation and communication and those things as well. Uh, if, if we're going to live out in, in a very primitive way, then we have to give up our attractions for all those things that we've become so much uh, addicted to practically. And the last thing I want to mention is that we uh, that a problem that we have in returning to the land is we have to train our children differently than we were trained. In other words, if we are actually thinking about doing something that is sustainable, means that we have to prepare our children for doing those things. And that means then that instead of learning calculus, you learn how to count the number of board feet that are required to build a house or to build a barn. Things like that. How much, how much wood are you going to need, uh, to, to get by this winter if we have a real bad cold spell like we had this past winter here in Texas? Uh, you got, you got to know approximately how much wood. So this is simple math. Well, I, you know, back in the sixties, I took my first degree in, uh, is electrical engineering. And so as part of the curriculum that I had to go through, we had, we had to go through, uh, several courses that were, uh, seemed to be related to engineering in general, but we couldn't quite see the usefulness of them. So I, I took, you know, the calculus one, calculus two, calculus three, 
uh, differential equations. And I had a lot of courses beyond, uh, you know, to, to take, to prepare for those courses. Like, you know, you had to have your regular mathematics and you had to have algebra one and two, your trigonometry, your plane geometry, your solid geometry. And then you got into what we called analytic geometry, which was another course that prepared you to go into calculus. And, um, one, one of the ironies was that when I when I got out of school in 1968, you know how much of of all those mathematics courses and all the engineering courses I actually used in working as an engineer? Zero. I never never had to do anything with even even algebra. I never had to do anything with algebra. What to speak of trigonometry, geometry, first, second, third calculus. And partial differential equations never had to do anything with those topics when I got out. But that was part of the engineering curriculum that all engineering students had to go through. So, uh, uh we have to decide now, are, are we going to deprive our kids of that kind of an education? In other words, we have to decide what is going to be the real basis for educating our children. And this is this is the topic that uh, my wife Jayanti has had to, had to deal with in establishing a curriculum for our gurukul here. What what are we going to teach them? Well, of course, we hope that they are getting some spiritual instruction at home, but we also want to kind of imp- supplement that with some spiritual instructions in school, and that's nice. But now, what about mathematics? How far are we going to take them in mathematics? I know Mother Gopi Gita's two boys, you know, they've already gone through the calculus courses. And uh, the question is, what is what are we preparing our students for? That is the question that has to be raised regarding our children if we are planning to go into a, a less sophisticated society than the one we're living in now. What are we going to educate them for? Are we going to educate them so that they can have the choice whether to stay on the farm and work, or whether they can uh, uh, take a job in town, go into town, and then get involved in the same kinds of lifestyle that we got involved in. That means going to work every day at, at a job, doing something that's practically meaningless in our lives, and resenting having to be there just to earn the money to pay the bills. Is that what we're preparing our children for? So this is the question that we have to raise before we start moving out in the country. And as far as taking care of animals out in the country, uh, what, what are we going to, what are we going to do with our cows? You know, of course, everybody wants cows so they can have fresh milk, right? But when, when you have the male calf coming and you don't believe in sending the calf off to the slaughterhouse, what are you going to do with the male cows? Are you just going to neuter them and just let them roam around the fields? Well, some people have said that that is, that, that the cow is worth caring for just for the way he fertilizes the land. You know, the urine and stool from a cow are considered to be the best forms of natural fertilizer. And so, uh, if, if you, if you, if you got enough land that you can do that with the male cows, then you can go ahead and raise cows. But sooner or later, you got to, you reach a limit uh, as to how much land you have and and uh, what what it's going to take care take care of uh, thirty to fifty cows, 
Uh, New Taliban, our community down in rural Mississippi, down in uh, Carrier, Mississippi, uh, they have taken cows that that people from other places have started a farm. You know, in our I'm talking about in our Iskon society, they started a farm, and first thing they want to do is is raise uh, milk cows. They want to have milk to offer to the deeds. Now that's a noble thing, but is there any thought given to first of all? Who's going to take care of them? Right now, we've got a 70-something-year-old man out there milking cows every day. That's right or not, Prabhu. And he takes it as a service. His body's giving him all kinds of trouble. He had trouble. He was telling me yesterday he had trouble getting out of bed because his back was hurting. And so, you know, when you get to be our age, I'm in my 70s as well, and uh, there's, there's a limit as to how much you can push this body to do. So who's going to take care of those cows? Anybody that's thinking about starting a farm had better think about what they're going to do to educate the children and what they're going to do, how they're going to take care of the cows so that they don't have to give them to somebody or pay somebody else to take them later on when you find out that you're going to have to close the farm down. So these are the kinds of things we think about. Well, Prabhupada has really requested that we start farming communities. And we're in total agreement with that. But uh, we, we, before you can do that, you have to educate the people. What is required to start, besides the initial price that you had to pay for it, what are the other considerations that you have? Like, what are you going to do with the children? You're going to send them to the country school out there? You're going to send them back into town to school? You're going to educate them yourself? These are questions that have to be answered. How are you going to give up the TV, the radio? How are you going to give up your automobile if you have one? Is it necessary? So you see, we're we're all quite a long ways away from the mentality that is required to run a farm and to live on a farm. And so, if if, if anybody suggests buying a, buying farmland, I think it's a really good idea to buy a farmland to make the attempt. Go ahead and get something established. Maybe people will go out on the weekends occasionally to do help out a little bit. You know, there are always jobs to be done around the farm. Rodnot Prabhu can always use some help. But he doesn't need somebody just to come out and sit down and want to talk for half the day, you know, and then get up and leave and go back to the city. He needs he needs help doing the work out there. So that has to be taken into consideration. So Queen Kunti is telling Lord Krishna that you're just by your presence here, everything is going very nicely. Adequate rain, we, we have adequate foodstuffs, we have jewels, we have pearls from the ocean, all these kinds of things we have by your presence here. Uh, but now we're entering a very sinful uh, time period, Kali Yuga. And uh, so... Uh, we finding that you know people when the when the factories are no longer able to employ people like during the past year when the COVID nineteen hit, how many people lost their jobs? A lot of people lost their jobs. What do they do for money? How do they pay their rent? How do they buy groceries? How do they take care of the children? Those are big problems. And so our government has has come in, has stepped in and helped. But where where does that trillion dollars come from? China. Chinese people lending us, they're our bankers, you know. 
these are considerations that make us want to think very seriously about a rural community, a self-sustaining rural community. And I was thinking about this back in the mid-70s, unable to understand how it could be done. And we're still a little bit in that position today, not knowing exactly how this is going to get done, knowing that Prabhupada has requested us to do it, knowing that it, 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 it that if we have another pandemic such as we had this past year, or we have some other natural disaster occurring, the farmers not able to grow foods, the ones that ship all their foods to Walmart and, and all these other stores, Albertsons and Tom Thumbs. Uh, what, what if something cuts, cuts that supply off? What do we do? So we need a place to go where we can stay, have shelter, uh, have, make our own food, uh, have a source of water. Those are primary things. And have, have heat in the, in the wintertime too. Um, and of course out in, out in the country you have wood, wood heaters and fireplaces and stuff like that, which a lot of places in the city don't have. All right, that's as much as I wanted to talk about regarding this idea of, of uh, farming since uh, Queen Kunti has shown so much appreciation for Krishna, to Krishna for, you know, making their lives bearable at that time. Uh, anybody want to bring up anything else? Yes, Prabhu. Uh, we, have, have we got that microphone? That's the microphone right here. Yeah, would you please speak into the microphone? be so kind as to tell us your, what they call, takeaway from the whole experience of the Oklahoma farming project. Yeah. Um, he's, he's speaking about uh, uh, a project that we began in the early 80s, uh, bought something like 1,200, 1,400 acres of land uh, just over into o- o- Oklahoma, a very, very nice piece of land. And we spent quite a bit of money and, and squat, quite a bit of manpower in getting a place set up there where we could, uh, where we could have festivals. It had a, had a, come out a concrete floor for a barn that was up there, open-sided barn. And, uh, and it also had a place of a guest house where a lot of people could stay, you know, that was heated with wood, but it had central heat and central water heating also. And so we spent a lot of effort there, spent money, you know, and all of us here in the community at that time were going out and we were, you know, collecting money. We had ways of doing that. Um, and so then, uh, then what, what was known, what became known as the guru reform movement, uh, happened. And a lot of people became disgruntled because they were, they were told things by other people that, that unsettled their minds and they left. And, uh, and, you know, what, what their destination was, I don't know. A lot of them we understand went back out of the material world. Uh, but, uh, that farm property, we had to give it up because we lost the source of income that we had at that time. And my spiritual master, he pretty much took, he took the blame for that. He said, but at the time we bought that property, we had the means to afford it. Uh, but then the, the, uh, that so-called guru reform, reform movement caused us to have to give up that, that project. It was either that or we might lose both the farm and our temple. That was, that was the choice we had to make.
And uh, Tamal Krishna Goswami said uh, sometime after then that our, our temple president here, he he uh, he saved us from losing our temple. He he pulled everybody out of the farm. Of course, I think there was a better way to do it than we did it. But uh, anyhow, it turned out to be a necessity. We couldn't handle both. And so um, I told my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, at that time, I said, Srila Gurdav, I said, uh, you know, any businessman takes a risk when he, when he wants to establish or, or expand his business. He takes a risk. And there's always the possibility that, that, you know, that it will ultimately lead, lead to failure. But unless you take a risk, you never know what you might have been able to accomplish. So at that time, we, you know, it was my conclusion that this is not a project that Krishna, Kalachanji, Radha Kalachanji, wanted us to pursue. They wanted us to build this community. And at that time, the construction was going on here in the temple room, and also we were just establishing the restaurant. And that opened up, I guess, 82 or 83, something like that. And that turned out to be one of the biggest preaching uh, uh, investments that we ever made. So even though we lost a lot of money and we lost a, still the persons who took it on themselves to try to raise the money for that project, to raise the money to re- revamp this temple room as we did to build the restaurant, those persons did not lose anything. They gained spiritual advancement during that time because they were giving up something in their own personal lives to try to do something for this community. So, as far as I'm concerned, no regrets. We tried to accomplish something for Krishna, and we did accomplish something for Krishna and for ourselves because we get to enjoy it too. Um, uh, but th- there's no loss. What is, what is it uh, Krishna says? No loss, no diminution. And a little advancement along this path can save one from the greatest type of fear. So anybody who who actually, you know, at that time we were going out selling artwork that we we uh, bought from, uh, I think, uh, South Korea and also Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, and, and uh, you know, many of us went out. We gave up time with our families. Uh, in, in the case of the women, some of the women in the community, they, uh, they went out uh, in the evenings. They even went out on the road at one time with the Sankirtan leader and, uh, and, and sold paintings out that way. But anyhow, that was not a sustainable project, but it's what helped us to make this temple what it is today. So we, we make our plans and we try to do something nice for Krishna. Tomorrow Krishna Goswami had, he, he did not need another project to put a star in his crown. He had, he had already done enough and then he did more after that. Uh, but this was something that he felt in his heart that we should do for Srila Prabhupada and for Lord Krishna. And if it didn't work out, then it was probably not meant to be. Not a blade of grass moves in all the three worlds without the consent of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Anything, Mr. Bhagavad Gita? Prabhupada was uh, really happy with New Vrindavan. Uh, I was sitting behind Srila Prabhupada when he saw this movie 
The Spiritual Frontier. Have you ever heard of that movie? I don't think so. Have you heard of it? Yeah. yeah. You can YouTube it. It's a short movie by Yadavar Prabhu on New Vrindavan. It just shows the devotees farming, doing everything, I like the ideal of everything that you were talking about, taking care of cows, growing food, self-sufficient, everybody, you know, nice nice houses that they built themselves. And uh, under Prabhupada's direction and with his enthusiasm for this pro- these kind of projects, the ISKCON bought many properties, like you know, like close to a dozen farms, including the one you're talking about in Oklahoma. Uh, we had two in California, New York State, upstate New York, New uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So you know, a bunch, and then within about five years, every one of them. Collapsed, except uh, New Vrindavan just gave up farming and survived by t- making the place into a, a resort, a, a place, a retreat, and a place of pilgrimage. But they're not, they they went completely away from the self-sufficient farming community that that they actually achieved, and then. Prabhupada also, he encouraged us to, he really wanted us to print his, print books and distribute his books, sell his books. He said our society should be uh, maintained by the sale of my books. So you had this, uh, you know, there's a lot that Prabhupada wanted us to do. He wanted us to preach in the cities. He wanted us to have communities like this. He wanted it at the same time. He always said that he didn't want he didn't want our his our Iskan children to have to be raised in the cities. He wanted them to to be on the farms. He would always say the household should live on the farms, and the cities should be like preaching centers. That and then there, that there could be a connection. And then the, it was really a, really a, a lot there, you know, to have to try to accomplish. Uh, like you said, the, um, book distribution got stopped. And then we went over, you know, because he, we didn't think it was a good enough reputation. And so then we switched over to this, selling the paintings just to, just to keep from going under. And to, you know, to, um, do all this that Prabhupada wanted. See, that, how was, how was it to be a prioritized, you know, like how, How could we, as a society, ISKCON society, work together in order to fulfill all that, those things, desires, especially now that we lost all those farms that, that, you know, now that, that the cost is, is totally cost prohibitive to, to be able to acquire that land again, at least as a community. And then we still have the, the task at hand to Maintain these temples in the in the cities, and he and we have to somehow establish book distribution, which is very hard. You know, like um, when Doctor Montagu was giving class, she was saying uh, book distribution is a very uh, 
like horrible activity where you have to go out and meet strangers and bother people. You know, you were saying that we had to quit book distribution because it gave us a bad reputation. So, so it, it just seems so. Um, so how, how do we stay encouraged? You know, to even to try to pursue the the, the ideals that Sri, like you said, Prabhupada really wanted these farm communities, and he also wanted all these other things. So, it, some, sometimes it just becomes. Uh, we become dismayed, like the, you know, we're, we're, it just doesn't look good for the home team. How do we manage to uh, be, uh, even get the enthusiasm or, or the hope that the, that any, that that these uh, all this instructions from Srila Prabhupada that he left us could be somehow manifest into reality? Good question. Any other question? <laughs> I, I really wish that I, uh, well, I, I, th- I think we know uh, a way to get to the answer. We might not have the answer in its entirety. I'll give an example. Uh, farming project. He wanted to establish farming projects. We have three farming projects within 50 miles of here. Less than, well, about 50 miles maybe. There's one that Sridhar Sham Prabhu has established, has bought, got together with a group of people, bought 200 acres of land near Wolf City. Uh, and then uh, uh, Sarvajai Madhuprabhu has gotten a group of people together, and he's bought uh, commercial land and farmland uh, up near, um, uh, uh, it's above Plano, uh, McKinney, McKinney, up close to McKinney. And then there's this one out here at Radhanath Prabhu's place. He and his wife have, you know, they they struggled to pay for the land that they have. They got 40 acres out there, house and about three acres, and then there's another 40 acres on the back. <clears throat> and so, uh, what what do we do? Uh, first of all, if we're really sincere about it, we're interested. We get together with other people and we talk about it. And uh, if it, that's the first thing. You gotta do that. You gotta talk about it. You can't, you don't just go out and act. <clears throat> if you've got the money, you can act on your own. You can buy your own property and you can make the rules. <clears throat> but if, if you got three other people who own pieces of land now, you know, collectively with other people, then, uh, you, you can get involved just, just by being there. Uh, because there's always something that needs to be done. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I went out to Radhanath Prabhu's place. And uh, for four and a half hours, I was riding a tractor, mowing the fields. And it was, wasn't too hot. I mean, I've been, I've, been, I've been out there driving the tractor, mowing fields in 95-degree in weather. And I can do that. I can do that, even though I'm, I'm getting advanced in age now. It's something that I can do. There's a lot of things that I cannot do. I can't deal with the animals because, you know, they break me to pieces. You know, uh, you get a 1,300-pound cow that you're trying to get into the into the stall or trying to get in, move from one place to another place. Uh, you have to know what you're doing or you get hurt. So that's one thing you can do. You just get involved. 
If you have the determination, if you see the problem and you don't do anything about it, then you are part of the problem. Isn't that what they say? If you're not, if you're not part of the solution to the problem, then you are part of the problem. So if you see that there is a problem and, and you think there's just something to be done, let's get started. Let's do something. So I'm not doing very much out at Rodney Prabhu's place and, and he's not doing as much as he used to do either. We're both in our seventies now. We can't do as much. It takes more time to rest, more time to recover <laughs> than it does to do the work. But nonetheless, it makes me feel good because I know that if a farm is to be maintained, you have to keep the fields mowed. Otherwise, you get weeds, you get trees growing up there, and eventually it just turns into a, just a wild forest. Um, book distribution. Uh, books can still be distributed. My 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 uh, godbrother from uh, India, uh, not in India, but China, uh, uh uh, Garanga Prema Prabhu was here a few years ago. He stayed over at my house for me. He's the one that took me around in 2011, 2012 when I went to China. He took me around, uh, uh, on the in, inside, you know, inside the mainland. And, uh, we, we had, we had some really interesting experiences. But he came back here and he stayed for a while and, uh, he started distributing books. Well, you know how he distributed books? He found out how to get to downtown on the bus. And he would go to downtown Dallas and distribute books. And he told me he was up to $100 a day in book distribution. Now, you 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 know, if, if somebody says we don't have book distribution anymore, it's not like it used to be. Uh, he has book distribution. And then he went on, eventually wound up in L.A., I think, with some big book distributors out there. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure what he's doing now. But he's just an example of how a person can come from another culture. He spoke good English, by the way. His English was good enough that he could, he could communicate with practically anybody. But here he is from China coming to America. You know, what kind of a culture shock is that? Which means that if you have the determination to do something, you just you just do it. And I've heard of Tree, what was his name, uh, the Tree Bouvenot in in uh, England. Yeah, going out by himself with a merdunga, playing the merdunga, going just walking down the streets, walking into restaurants and places, and playing. And and then there was also Jayananda. Um, uh, out in California, San Francisco, what was it? John Hunter, was that his name? Yeah. And you know, what would he do? You know, here he was, new devotee too, and he would uh, he would bake cookies and take them out to the garbage collectors. Simple things. Simple things can be done. <clears throat> and he was temple president out there, and he requested permission from Prabhupada to go and be the driver for the book distribution team. And Prabhupada said yes. Here he was, had all the responsibility of being a temple president, and he was willing to take the position of driver to drive the book distributors around. It can be done, Mr. Bhagavan Prabhu. It's, you know, the, we can say, well, things are not like it used to be when Prabhupada was here. Prabhupada is still here. Uh, I've heard Tamal Krishna say that. Uh, if, if Prabhupada were not here, how is it that uh, books are still being distributed all over the world? Temples are being built. Devotees are being made. If Prabhupada is not here, how are all these things happening? Could they happen without Prabhupada being here? Don't think so.
So you still running the show. You ask Nityananda who Nityananda Prabhu who's running this temple community. He says the man up there in the room upstairs. I'm talking about Prabhupada's room. It, Prabhupada's running the show here in Dallas. You just had to figure out what it is that Prabhupada wants you to do. Or what your what your own spirit your initiating guru. If, if you're not a Prabhupada Sam, you have to figure out what your spiritual master wants you to do and you try to do it. And if you're if you're crippled and helpless practically like I am and there's not that much you can do. I still I can, I can crawl up on a tractor and I can drive a tractor for four and a half hours out in the out in the midday heat. Uh, getting getting the fields bush hogged because um, it it needs to be done. And Radhanath Prabhu's got enough on his hands. He's got he got a cow that he's milking, he's got another cow, the cow that's about to give birth to a calf. He's got that calf to be concerned with. He he had to. I'll tell you what. Uh, you're talking about uh, you know getting involved in your activities. Uh, this calf, when he was born, the one that's been born recently, uh, for the cow that's producing milk, this calf uh, uh, could not suckle properly. Something was wrong. The way that he was born kept him from being able. His muscles in his mouth kept him from being able to latch on to the teats of his mother cow. He could not suckle. So he was he was he was not doing well. And so Ranat Prabhu went to a veterinarian who deals with herds of cows, milk cows, and asked him what should I do? And the the uh, veterinarian gave him a, a a big like a flask that had a tube, a plastic tube on it with a ball on the end of it. And the plastic tube was maybe 18 inches, two feet long. And so Radhanat, he told Radhanat Prabhu how to do this. Radhanat Prabhu had to get the cow, the calf's head between his legs and put that tube down the calf's throat and, and run milk directly into the, into the calf's stomach. And, and now the calf, calf was not that big. I don't know, maybe 70, 80 pounds, something like that. But that's that's a lot to handle when they when he didn't want something stuck down his throat. But now he's doing very well. He's he's bouncing around. You know, he nurses from his mother like he's supposed to. Rather not save that calf's life. He took it on himself to do it. Now he could have stayed. He could have stayed right there and say, "Well, you know, we lost our farm up in Oklahoma." And Rather not had a position in the in the farm at Oklahoma. He had to go up there at Tamal Krishna Goswami's instruction. And help to run the place and manage the place. He could have said, well, what's the use? You know, we lost that place up there. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to try to do any more farming. I'm just not going to get involved. He could have done that. But what he did, he and his wife bought 40 acres out and he's, and they've got about, let's see, two, four, six, got about five cows, I think. And now that little baby and the baby that was born is a male. So he's not going to produce milk. So then that, then that has to be determined. What, what, what are we going to do? Well, fortunately, Kalki Prabhu, who is now, who lives in the community with us, uh, he, he has worked, uh, he has trained a team of young oxen. He's done that before. So if we can convince him to stay in the community, <laughs> then, uh, then he can, he can take this calf. And we've got another calf coming. It should be here just about any time now. 
So anyhow, there are things that can be done if a person is willing to do it. If you don't know how to get out and start a farm yourself, if you don't know how to plant crops, uh, you know, get with Gopal Das, Gopal Prabhu, who goes out to Radhanath's farm. He, he is, he's planting all kinds of things out there. Kalki Prabhu has planted all kinds of stuff out there. And Radhanath and I are just trying to keep the place, you know, up as, as nice as it can as it can be, considering the equipment that we have, we don't have a team of oxen to work, so we have to drive a tractor and get the job done. But it's getting the job done, so we're doing what we can. And and uh, uh, Goranga Prema, the, my friend from uh, from Hong Kong, from China, Shenzhen, actually, uh, he 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 comes here to America and distributes hundred dollars worth of books in the day. So there are things that can be done, but if you see the if you see the problem, you need to help find a way to solve the problem. You can't say nobody's doing it. I'm going to quit. I'm going to walk away. And of course, you have done that, Mr. Bogle, and you've seen all kinds of things going around here, and you haven't walked away. You're still coming. <laughs> yeah, and Kishore is here also. Okay, well, is is that all? Is that all right? Is is there anything else? You any other comments that you'd like to make, Prabhu? Either one of you, you're satisfied. Takeaway and your conclusion about what, how to do. Very satisfied. <laughs> all right. Anything else, Mr. Bhagwan, Prabhu? Thank you very much for the nice class. My pleasure to be here with you and to do what my spiritual master has asked all of his disciples to do, and that is to give a Bhagavatam class. So I'm trying to cooperate with uh, Premitaru Prabhu, who is the master of ceremonies. He's, he's the one that makes the assignments, and he has asked me to give a class once one, one time a week. So this at least this much I can do and honor my spiritual master's request. And also try to encourage uh, Prema Taru in his effort to get people to speak in, at a class. You do that. You've done that a couple of times here the past couple of weeks. And I thank you for that, Mr. Bhagwan. The examples that you've given from your previous experiences in Krishna consciousness have been really nice to hear. My wife and I both are listening to them. All right. Rantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai, Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai, Anantakodi Vaishnavrinda Ki Jai, Vanchakalpata Rubis Jai, Kripa Sindhavya Eva Jai, Bhatitanam Bhavanibhyo Vaishnavibha Namo Namaha. Hare Krishna. All glories to the assembly of us. Thank you everyone for listening in. Hare Krishna.